0: Guys, welcome to Relatable. Today I am talking to Nathan Finocchio. You guys. Probably, I know a lot of you do. You follow him on Instagram, um, and you know of him. You know of Theos University, the online seminary that he is a part of. Today, we are going to talk about a whole host of things. It's really a wide-ranging conversation that I know that you guys are going to like, because he's super interesting. We are going to talk about deconstructionism. Um, he's a charismatic, and so he's going to talk about some of the issues that he sees in kind of his part of uh, the Christian evangelical world. And then we are going to have a conversation about Christian nationalism, nationalism, imperialism. Um, he's got some really interesting perspectives on that. And he has a lot to say that, honestly, I don't think that we talk about in a very serious way very much. In the Christian evangelical world. And so we're going to have that conversation and because progressives are having that conversation. So that means that we need to understand what's going on. So I'm really excited for you to listen to this. So without further ado, here is Nathan Finocchio. Nathan, thank you so much for joining us. Can you first tell everyone who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, so my name is Nathan Finocchio, and I am the founder of TheosU and Theos Seminary. TheosU is a subscription-based theological uh, education site. Basically, we condense um, kind of full-length Bible college courses uh, from, you know, let's say the the Book of Romans from like 36 hours to, to about six or eight hours um have a a, a wide uh ecumenical range of teachers uh, at Thaos and people pay you know 14 bucks a month and they subscribe i'm a i'm a charismatic um evangelical con- politically conservative uh guy and so that's kind of the space that i live in and uh we have about so, so just over 4000 subscribers kind of worldwide about a quarter of them are pastors of of charismatic evangelical churches um so that's that's kind of uh that's kind of what I do
0: yeah that's awesome tell me why you guys started theosio
1: we started theosio because we f- we feel like a co- couple things firstly we believe that um the average person sitting in the pew on a sunday morning in an evangelical charismatic church um uh, their their uh their desire for theological depth is dramatically underestimated um, number 1 number 2 we feel like uh the charismatic evangelical world is sort of the wild wild west theologically and um and many schools are slipping into sort of a progressive liberalism theologically and um so we just wanted to do something about that we wanted to we wanted to be a part of the solution for what feels like an unraveling of the evangelical charismatic uh movement which uh, you know has been has been conservative for for decades, uh, but is now yeah. kind of become kind of a swing, you know, uh, yeah, swing state, so to speak.
0: Yeah, and it's not just the charismatic world; it's not just the evangelical charismatic world. Obviously, that's not the world that I occupy, but I see that kind of liberalism, deconstructionism, postmodernism, infiltrating. You know the the Southern Baptist Convention, which certainly has been seen as some kind of pillar of conservatism for a long time. Why why do you think that's why do you think that's happening? Why do you think this kind of postmodern liberalism is infiltrating so many parts of the church that used to be seen as staunchly conservative?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I, a couple of reasons. Um, I think that there is a crisis of authority. Um, and so, 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 firstly, I'd say it's epistemological. I think that kids, the younger generation, um, has learned um, an epistemology that lends itself to deconstruction, that lends itself to progressive um, theology, and that epistemology is that uh, I I can't trust traditional forms of authority I can't trust the church I can't trust my own history so you know America they're taught America's bad they're taught the church is bad they're taught the Bible hurt you know hurts people um, and that love is the most important thing and self is the most important thing and so uh, to me it's a it's a crisis of authority it's a crisis of uh, and there's just an immense um, multiplied pressure on these young people to make moral choices and not be moral monsters like America, like the church. Um, So that that to me, it's like, it's, it's sort of like a, it's a, it's a, it's a conundrum of, I don't want to be, man, like America's bad. The church is bad. I don't want to be bad. So I need to sort of, but, but, but I, I think that God is right and God is good. So I don't want to throw God out. I don't want to, I don't want to throw Jesus out entirely. It's, it's interesting, Allie, like nobody's really throwing Jesus out. They're just giving Jesus a new accent and putting new clothes on him. Um, yeah. And that, that's kind of what, you know, That's obviously that's deconstruction. That's the most frustrating thing. So it's like, you know, they want their cake, their cake and, and they want to eat it too. So that, that's kind of my, my yeah. Yeah. little minute spin.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's so many different factors, I think, that have gone into why we're in the place that we're in, and evangelicalism. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about deconstruction? There are some people that they, they don't know what it is, and we're also told— by people that almost, like you said, like almost sound biblical. Like they sound like they really love Jesus saying that deconstruction is actually a key part of sanctification, that Job deconstructed his faith. And so there might be some people listening who think, you know, deconstruction is awesome and wonderful. And it's something that we all have to do. Can you kind of just break that down for us?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I think you do a wonderful job um, yourself, but uh, just just a couple of thoughts. I think that we, we all we all sort of um, so deconstruction I, I think is misunderstood to be education, right? So so um, you know for for example I grew up in a in a charismatic community and there were th- things in the charismatic community that I didn't necessarily like and so I sort of you know went out exploring and I decided that there were probably some excesses there are some weird teachings on faith there's some you know so but. That's 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 just i mean that's that's what you do you as you grow up you you start to you know read and you start to read the reformers or you read you know the the patristics or whatever, and you just add knowledge to your faith, which is what you're supposed to do as a Christian. Deconstruction is questioning um the meta narratives, so it's kind of like you know, is the Bible even true? what parts are even true so it's 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 decon I mean Eve was the first person to deconstruct right god told uh-huh. her things and she decided to question god's word you know who god is which is an extension of who god is and that's what deconstruction is deconstruction is basically going you know what i'm willing to turn this whole thing upside down because ultimately i don't trust anybody including god I, myself is the locus of authority, and I only trust myself and my experiences. And once again, coming, getting back to the epistemological factor there. Um, so that's right. what deconstruction is, and very few people come back from it. Very few people return right. to orthodox, um, to historic orthodox Christianity. So it's it's because it, it's you know once you start going down that path of you know you're tugging you know deconstruction has its whole community it's kind of like if you start you know obsessing over um uh, you know i don't know fitness you know fitness has its it's it's a whole community you know you start wearing fitness fit fash and you you know and you start right. working up <laughs> garages You know, like, so deconstruction has a a whole thing to it and people get into that and they start following all these accounts and they just start literally talking babble nonsense.
0: Yeah, right. And that actually is a, a perfect point that leads to the question that I was about to ask is that we're talking about epistemology and how they view, you know, truth through the prism of themselves. The only thing, like you said, that they can trust is themselves, their feelings, their lived experiences. I actually saw a post the other day that said, like, your uh, your marginalized status and your lived experiences are holier than the Bible. So that, I think, is a good summation of what deconstructionists is think. But at the same time, even though in that like hyper-individualistic, personal, subjective way of obtaining knowledge, they all end up saying the same thing. So really, they just replace what they see as religious dogma in orthodox Christianity for other kinds of religious dogma. They say that it's just through them that they're finding truth, but they all have the same talking points. And yeah. so it seems like they're just adopting they're adopting a new doctrine and they are still believing in some kind of absolute truth. Because surely if you just trusted yourself, you would all be kind of coming up with different ideas of what faith and what Jesus and what God looks like. But they all think that Jesus was a transgender communist. So like, where does that happen? Like, where are these people going to get this information, to get their new dogmas and to get their new faith? It's not just their lived experiences. They must have some kind of
1: source yeah, I reckon that there's there's definitely you know there's there's unity among uh, the Orthodox and then there's unity among the periphery, and there are yeah. some key players in the peripheral uh, the, the the peripheral world of Christianity. I would say like Richard Rohr would be one of them. Um, Brian Zahn would be one of them. Um, these are some you know some 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 authors that. They, that pe- people, you know, eventually gravitate to, um, and so you know, they—they they, they obviously they like you said they have a dogma. They have there is a there is some sort of fellowship, some sort of a uh, common held system of belief. Um, but I think yeah. that, that at the end of the day, it's probably motivated by um, once again lots of motivations. Perhaps one of the motivations is that they. You know they have a, a misguided sense of love, and and to me that's that's but one of the earmarks or the a watermark of um, of Richard Rohr and Brian Zond is that you know God is never retributive in His, in his justice. Everybody gets to go to heaven, you know Rob Bell. Um, so it's a it's a it's a it's a Christian heresy. All their heresies are Christian, which is hilarious. And you're right, you know that nobody's deconstructing to become, you know to to worship the Norse gods, right? Like. The Norse gods are cruel. The Norse gods are horrible. Nobody's nobody's deconstructing to become a pagan. All of the um, all of the deconstructionists are just Christian heresies. So that's kind of cute.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. And why is it? You mentioned this before. Like, why is it that they try to not just retain Jesus, but like you said, give him new clothes, recharacterize him and then really like detach him from the trinity i've noticed because they don't want to think that he has anything to do with the god of the old testament even if that even existed they would probably say like how, how do they how do they get that like why do they hold on to jesus so tightly and yet the jesus they hold on to is not even the jesus we see depicted in the gospels why not just let go of jesus altogether
1: because because i think that they're nervous I think they're scared. I, I honestly think that they believe that there is an afterlife it's it's a It's really hard to like the last thing that a deconstructionist has to do is scrub their conscience to basically sear their conscience of uh of this uh of the idea that there is an afterlife because i th- I do think that that we all do have some sense of justice like surely the the world is broken mm-hmm. and it needs to be put to right. right. And I think that most of them are going, okay. I don't like Orthodox Christian. I don't like organized religion. But I'm going to hold on to Jesus because then I think that I I still squeeze in somehow. <laughs> so it's I think it's sort of their fire insurance. And and you know you don't get rid of uh the, you know even you know the, the psyche. I mean it's burned into you. The the, the right. reality of hell, right? Like the 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 and that there's surely there, there'd be a justice. So I, I think I think that's exactly it. That the the, yeah. the the heresies are Christian because they're scared to 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 just let go,
0: to totally let go. Yeah, I also think that if you can cast Jesus into whatever image you want, it's kind of like what C.S. Lewis talks about in. Um, screw tape letters about social justice, Christianity, using Jesus or using Christianity as a means to their ends. I think Jesus is a really nice mascot because like you said, you can kind of retain your Christianity, but you can you know believe whatever you want to believe and Jesus just comes along for the ride. He can make you feel good about your political activism if you believe that he was a Palestinian, you know, freedom fighter who just, you know, advocates for all the things that you advocate for. So I think it's also like a righteous sounding way to be to be liberal <laughs> um yeah. and to be a secular leftist, that Jesus is kind of just coming along for the ride of your ideological journey. Yeah, I think it's it, that's similar to what you said, though, that having Jesus still at least pat you on the back and still be your cheerleader, that makes you feel like you're on the right path, even if you've abandoned all idea of Christian morality.
1: Yeah, that's, that's absolutely it. Yeah, dude, shaking, shaking Jesus is going to make you really nervous because— um, you know it's interesting. Well, you, you, you quoted C.S. Lewis, and uh, isn't it funny? Kind of an, an aside here that C.S. Lewis is now like a, a right-wing talking point.
0: I I think I saw you say that on Instagram. I would love for you to give me an example of that. So people are saying like, if you quote C.S. Lewis, then you're what? Like you're a bigot or you're on the right or what is it?
1: Well, for example, like C.S. Lewis writes. An essay on capital punishment he writes an essay on in you know, the same one as he writes about retributive justice on just desserts um he writes uh in the abolition of man he absolutely slams socialism um yeah he writes on patriotism like quite uh quite profusely and he and, and, and patriotism and kind of nationalism are, are somewhat synonymous in terms of his descriptions, his descriptors. Um, you know, Lewis is, for all intents and purposes, orthodox. Uh, mere Christianity is, yeah. is 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 just cat. It's just High Anglican Catechism. Um, and so, all that to say, you know, C. S. Lewis was sort of like he was like in my world, particularly when I grew up, he was like sort of like left of center. And like all of yeah. my social justice <laughs> friends would like quote C. S. Lewis. And now, like none of yeah. them quote C.S. Lewis, uh, which I think is absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Oh, in the Screw Tape letters, you know C.S. Lewis uh, talks about how Christians are or Christians will will use social justice, you know, to to get their means that 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 you know the exactly. en- that like so social justice is essentially um, a, a ploy of the enemy, you know, to to kind of socialize Christianity and make it palatable, but really they the, the you know they'll have other um ends. So it's just it's hilarious. Yeah. Um, you know, as you read yeah. CS Lewis, you That's start to realize that shift. Yeah, a hundred percent.
0: All right, telling you guys about a sponsor you guys know that I love, and that is Annie's Creative Woman Club. So if you are looking for a way to treat your wife or treat your mom or treat your daughter or sister or friend, Annie's Kit Club is a really great gift option for you. What happens is she will get a brand new craft kit delivered every month um, that is really engaging but also very simple to create. Uh, they send you all the instructions and special supplies that you need to create a piece of boutique-worthy decor. So no matter your crafting experience, you can make uh, a perfect project that you'll love to display or gift to someone else. So these crafts include things like painting projects or needle craft, beading, candle and soap making. Maybe Maybe these are things that you or your wife or your girlfriend or whatever have wanted to do, um, but, or wanted to learn how to do it, but they didn't know how well Annie's kit clubs and Annie's creative woman club makes that really easy. So you don't have to worry about trips to the craft store, no searching for materials, try to try new techniques with instructions. So easy. You'll find skills. You never knew that you had Annie's will uh, help you make the most of your me time with a monthly creative retreat. Go to annieskitclubs.com slash Allie and save 50% on your first kit. That's annieskitclubs.com slash Allie, and you'll save 50% on your first kit. That's annieskitclubs.com slash Allie. You talked about, um, you mentioned their nationalism and patriotism. That is also um, like a flashpoint in Christian conversations right now that a lot of the people, I would say not even just totally progressive Christians, but like people, maybe center laughter in the center. They're really afraid to say anything about American exceptionalism or that America is a great country. There's even been this like Ugh, towards the 4th of July. And then we hear all this stuff about Christian nationalism being the biggest threat to Christianity. People like Beth Moore have said things like that. And you've really pushed back against that in a way that I haven't seen anyone else do because I've kind of been like, well, no, I don't think Christian nationalism is a, is a big threat. And you have kind of said, what's wrong with Christian nationalism? So yeah. I kind of just want to hear your perspective on all of that.
1: Yeah. So, so I think that Christian, that, na- okay. so, so, uh, I'll try to lay this out um, as best I can. So, firstly, we all have a nationalistic picture, right? Like, would you would you not agree that every everybody has a nationalistic idea? Like, as in, I want the country should be like this. The country should be less Christian or more secular or more like like doesn't wouldn't wouldn't you agree that everybody has a nationalistic ideal?
0: Yeah, like you're saying, everyone has an idea of what they think the country should be like.
1: Correct. Yeah, exactly. So Christians are just honest about how they want the country to be. Um, yeah, we want we we want our legislation to be informed by Judeo-Christian principles. We right, all legislation is moral, um, and so we that that's we're just we're, we're we're frank we're honest this is this is what we believe people who are, are are secularists you know draw from this that everybody draws from some sort of moral pool right so um so my 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 first contention is that we all have a nationalistic ideal uh, this is what the, the country should be like we all vote um, we all engage politically um, all of our justice initiatives they all come from some sort of moral pool so so when you say Christian nationalist, I think to myself, I you know, if Jesus was building a country, like wouldn't that be cool? You know, like what if we followed Jesus's ideals of, you know, loving people and 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 defending people and so so you know, at first glance, you know, just on face value, Christian nationalist seems like actually that's a great idea. You know, to to have a country, you know, I wish all of God's People were, you know, were prophets. Like, why wouldn't, wouldn't that be great? So, number one. Number two, though, I found a, I've come to learn uh, there's a book re, uh, written recently about about Christian nationalism. The the the, the title escapes me at the moment, um, but basically, like, is, is of, it
0: the "Winning Back America for God" one?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's it, it, yeah.
0: it's about, it's from like the pro- progressive perspective, right?
1: Correct. Yeah. And basically what it does is it just caricatures it basically takes the name christian nationalist and then caricatures this this concept so so instead of it meaning like christian and nationalist which we should talk about what nationalist means it puts these two together and it's like christian nationalists you know hate immigration christian you know like and just it's a litany of of yeah. ridiculous character. They
0: hate interracial, interracial marriage. They said yes. that, um, which I don't know where they get this information. I think they, they base it off of like one misguided poll or something like that. And they decided they, does everything that is bad about anyone, they decided, okay, like let's make a list of that. And then let's say that people who are Christian nationalists, according to our definition like, yeah. hold on to those character qualities, like yeah. not Take liking a science. black and a white person getting married. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Exactly. It's, it's just all ridiculous. So, so, so that is kind of a working def- And I was seeing Christian nationalists pop up everywhere on Instagram, you know, people going, you know, we need to repent of Christian nationalism. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, what, you know, <laughs> and, and I kept on asking people to define what it was. I, like, in, Christian nationalism, in, in total yeah. sincerity. You know, like, would you please tell me? Yeah. And, and nobody would respond to me. Absolutely nobody would respond to me. Finally, I got a PDF, <laughs> uh, which was basically a um, sort of a, a a skeleton or a sketch of what that book was. And then I began, OK, got you. OK, so it's a, it is a pejorative term. Um, and these are um, th- these are the descriptors, etc. cetera. So uh, and I, I, I kind of worked my way through it and kind of responded to it. It's just it's just a lot of nonsense. But. Uh, nationalism. So one of my favorite authors, uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, who was a mentor of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said of Chesterton, "I only ever added water to his wine." Um, so a lot of, hmm. of of Lewis's views are in Chesterton, um, and and Ch- Chesterton was a and he he self defined as an English nationalist. And when he talked about nationalism, he didn't talk about uh, in. He didn't. He didn't mean it as imperialism. So this is this is one of the, the issues that people don't understand about nationalism. Nationalism is not imperialism. So imperialism is when you violate the sovereignty of another country. Like for example, um, you know, Hitler. Was Hitler a nationalist? Yeah, in some ways he was a nationalist. But it wasn't his nationalism that got him in trouble. Um, it was his imperialism that got him in trouble. Right? He wanted. He wanted the whole world to be the Third Reich. Um, so, nationalism is a it's a passion for your own country, and it's a passion for the sovereignty of your own nation. Um, in, in this way, Chesterton thought that it was the opposite of um, it was the opposite of selfish because you're championing other people, not yourself. Um, which I thought was pretty cool. And and when when Chesterton talked about nationalism, he loved it because he wanted the French to be French, and he wanted the English to be English. And when he visited France, he's like, man, I I don't want to hear English spoken. I want to hear French spoken, and I want to eat French foods, and I want to be totally immersed in the culture. But when I returned to England, I want it to be English, and so uh, his. For example, Ch- Chesterton was a stout defender, believe it or not, at you know the time that he was really writing in, in the uh, the early 20th century, um, a, a staunch defender of Indian nationalism. Like you know, for example, like you know Gandhi and that whole movement. Like hey, you know, like we want the right of self determination. That's ultimately what nationalism is. It's it's the the right of self determination. We want to determine as a country um who we are and what we want to be and we don't want the british to tell us who we are and what we want to be he was a staunch defender of irish nationalism you know let the irish be irish let them be self-determining let them be their own country that's pretty cool stuff nobody would 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 say today you know that indian nationalism sucks and that it's evil or that Irish nationalism sucks or, evil, or even, you know, for that matter, Scottish nationalism. I mean, we all everybody watches that movie Braveheart and we all cry and we all hate long shanks and we all, you know, freedom and we paint our faces blue and we're obsessed with Scottish <laughs> nationalism. But for some reason, there's a disconnect when we talk about American nationalism and Scottish nationalism. And that right there is the problem. So,
0: yeah.
1: Uh, American nationalism is a desire for self-determination. Now, the problem with American nationalism is there's, there's, there's kind of two views. So in my estimation, Trump was an American nationalist. He was not an imperialist, uh, for the most part. Um, an right. imperialist is, is somebody who, so for example, I mean, let's just take the EU and the UN for an example. Um, those are imperial structures. So, um, the, the Assyrian Empire, the Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian Empire—those were imperial empires, right? They 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 conquered and then they imported their culture and their ideas, etc. And imperialism, American imperialism, for example, looks like a Starbucks on every corner. You know, of you know, you're in Germany and you, there's a Starbucks. You know, you're in Japan, there's a Starbucks. It's horrible. And um, and then. More importantly, the EU, right, like, or the UN, for example, those nations regularly violate the self-determination and sovereignty of other nations, and they do it by force, right? Like, yeah, and, and, and they're unelected bodies who are pushing other elected bodies around and they do it with the force of the american military machine and so there's two types of americanism at the moment there's this imperial americanism and then there's a there's a there's a american nationalist um ideal and the american nationalist ideal is hey we want the right to self-determination and, and then, a, and so, if you add Christian nationalism, that is just simply um, we we want the, uh, our country. We, we want to vote Christian. We want to be Christian. We want to invite everybody to be Christian. Hey, if you want to vote secular, if you want whatever, but we think that our ideals are going to be better ideals, and we're going to vote that way. And we're going, you know, of course, going to be tolerant, but we're not going to we're not going to be imperial. So that's kind of how. Um, now, the yeah. reason why nationalism got such a dirty name. Um, because before World War II, everybody was a nationalist. Like everybody was talking about, man, you know, like you know, Germany needs to be German, and Belgium needs to be Belgian, and you know, France needs to be French, and every everybody should be what they are, etc. cetera. But after World War II, people falsely diagnosed the German problem with uh, misplaced nationalism, which a the reason why Germany was defeated, because other nationalists defeated him. B, once again, uh, Hitler was an imperialist. He was trying to, you know, I mean, obviously he had other problems, like, you know, killing Jews, for example, but he wanted everybody to kill Jews. That's imperialism, right? Like, he wanted the Polish to treat the Jews in such and such a way. Um, and, um, And then... You know, so 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 what happens is after the after the war everybody begins to go on a tirade and begins to blame you know nationalism well nationalism is why this happened well no hitler was the scorpion's tail of 150 years of of frederican exceptionalism like that that was the issue the issue was that you guys thought that you were you know the cat's meow and you'd been telling you know, that you were you know, superior even in your race to everybody else, and then you know you wanted to you wanted to create an empire. you were imperialists. you weren't just, you wasn't, you weren't just nationalists desiring the right of self-determination. you were imperialists. you thought you were better, and you wanted to conquer right. everybody. so um, right. so people were unable to properly diagnose nationalism at the end of World War II, and they just went along with this thing. And we're like, yeah, nationalism is bad. And then that was adopted in the academy, right? Oh, yeah. National- yeah. So, you know, you know, in the 1950s and 1960s, all of a sudden we start to see this whole uh, kickback against nationalism. And now nationalism is a dirty word. And now it's becoming a pejorative word. And let's say patriot, not nationalist. And the issue is now uh, Yoram Amazonie has a book called The Virtue of Nationalism, which I highly, highly, highly recommend. Uh, he's actually uh, he's he's a Jew. He's an Old Testament scholar, which is kind of fun, and he is a he's a an Israeli nationalist. And he talks about uh, there, there's just I could, I could go on and on about about nationalism and about the book and about his his views. But uh, Chesterton d- does the same thing. Chesterton talks about how the, the a nation is less like a business and more like a family. A nation is less a group of individuals. And more a family, like a in a marriage, you, you know, you get into a marriage, you, you marry a woman, two individuals kind of coming together, and it's sort of like a business contract. But then after a while, you start having kids, everything changes. I mean, those kids aren't in the relationship with you because of the, it's a business, right? There, there are other loyalties. Um, and so his, his idea here is that nationalism understands that nations are more than individuals. And there are other loyalties, and when you don't, um, when you disregard those nuances of those extended and complex loyalties, that's when you start to get into political tr- trouble. Um, so all that to say, that's sort of my my two cents on on Christian nationalism. I think it's a great idea. I think that it's a good idea. I think it's a God idea. I think that nations are a God idea. Um, You know, the the scriptures, the book of Revelation, for example, talks about the nations bringing their wealth. So um, that's my two cents.
0: I have a lot of thoughts and a lot of questions. So (laughs) so I think that there are like your definition of nationalism, which I would agree, is simply saying that we need to put the needs of our country before the needs of another country, if you are the leader of that country. And you would say that that's that a, a good would. thing, that in the same way that a family would, also in the same way that, like, a mayor would or a governor would. It's funny how people say that putting America first, like that was Trump's line, America first. Oh, that's bigoted. That's so wrong. That seems to be what a lot of left-leaning Christians had a hard time with. Like that's prideful. That's what we need to repent of. Jesus doesn't care about America, all that kind of stuff. But you would never blame the mayor of Tulsa for saying, Hey, Tulsa's the best city in the country. I love the people of Tulsa and I don't care. I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, but I don't care about what Baltimore needs or whatever it is. My priority is Tulsa, and I'm going to put the needs of the people of Tulsa before the needs of the people of Sacramento or whatever. No one would fault someone for that. And actually, you would probably think it was really weird if the mayor of Tulsa was like, you know, I really – actually care just as much about Dallas as I do about Tulsa. You'd be like, no, you're a horrible leader. But for whatever reason, when it comes to national leadership, and like you said, not of any other country, uh, but of America, people think that's prideful. If the leader of Kenya said, I love Kenya, I love Kenyans, I love Kenyan values, and I want to put Kenya first, there's not a leftist in America who would think that that's bigoted or wrong or supremacist. But because I think, like you said, I guess after World War II, and I hadn't thought about that, the West started, I guess, you know, thinking that, oh, nationalism is bad, exceptionalism is bad, which I, I don't think exceptionalism is bad. I think it's totally fine if someone from Australia thinks Australia is the best country in the world. Like I want their leaders to think that I want them to like Australia. I want them to be patriotic and people also, I think that they get confused between that mentality, which like, I, like you said, um, I think is good. And then thinking that like that by saying that you're saying that God thinks that Americans are superior to, other Christian or like other people in the world. And I think that's where when people say you need to repent of Christian nationalism, that's what they are assuming that patriotic Americans think that I think that God loves us better than they love someone from South America or that we are God's chosen nation like Israel in the old Testament and America, not Christians, but America is the city on a hill and people from Brazil don't matter. I think that is what they think they are critiquing when they critique Christian nationalism. Do you agree with that?
1: 100%. They they think that that there's there's this hilarious idea that Americans it's a caricature that conservative Americans don't care about the the world, don't care about other people. Think that, you know, that Jesus is American, that Jesus is white. Like, it's it's so stupid. It's such a stupid caricature. Meanwhile, uh, you know, evangelicals, um, you know, feeding the world. Like we adopt more kids from third world countries, you know, uh, by ratio, we give. We we started all of the you know like world vision and and compassion et cetera. We, we you know we, we go on everybody goes on mission trips. I mean, I remember being dragged to Haiti a couple of times by my dad. Um, you know that's that's what we do as conservative Christians. We that's what you do. You you get involved. You you go to the soup kitchen. You know like you that's what we. we so it's just utter and total nonsense. It's 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 um. It's a it's a it's a caricature and it doesn't hold up, um, but it's convenient, right? Like and 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 it's a, it's a great way to bludgeon um, conservatives for going. Yeah, well, no, I, I believe in you know. Uh, so for example, I'm a Canadian and I, I live in the United States and uh, on, you know on a visa. Um, and I've been here for for 10 years, and you know I have to. Uh, I, by all means and uh, for all intents and purposes I, I'm a, I'm an I'm an immigrant. Um. And I believe in the process of immigration, you got to know who's coming into your country. But if you're a conservative and you say that, um, particularly if you're a white evangelical, right, automatically you don't care about people. You just you hate people, and conservatives hate people, and you're a, you're a Christian <laughs> nationalist. You don't want anybody who's not white or Christian to come into the country. No, I literally never said that. Although, hey— uh, right. Would it be a bad thing if we had if people that came to America wanted to be American, you know, like and and they held some of the American philosophy? Well, there is no American philosophy. Actually, there there is uh, there actually is American philosophy. Um, so, you know, and that's a whole other conversation.
0: Yeah. Do you think this is my other question that I thought about when you were talking? Do you think that imperialism? how you defined and described it is always wrong because you kind of described it as trying to like import or export, I guess, ideas into another country. You also kind of talked about like the exporting of power and influence in other countries, but you also talked about like exporting businesses like Starbucks into other countries. Like those are all different forms of maybe a kind of imperialism. Do you yeah. always think it's wrong? Because you kind of contrasted it to nationalism, which you think is good, but it sounds like you think imperialism is always wrong. Is it always wrong in your
1: opinion? No, no, no. no. So, for, for example, I'm not saying that, that you know, for like, if they ask you, they, I mean, I, my, my business is in like, you know, 60 countries or something. So, I don't think that doing trade and doing business, et cetera, is, is, is wrong. Um imperialism is – it is – no. So for example, like Joram Hazzoni calls the EU the Fourth Reich, which I think is hilarious. Um, and he just basically says like Germany's still the one that is setting all of the pace. They're the ones that are making all the decisions for everybody else in the EU. So it's still German rule but it's economic. Um mm. so can there be kind of you know economic you know warfare? Yeah, absolutely. Um Am I saying that I'm not I'm not I'm not comparing that to trade. I'm just saying, you know, if you don't do this, well, then we won't lend you this, you know. So, you know, you have to fall in line and you're violating somebody else's sovereignty. You know, like what if what if Greece doesn't want to let in any more refugees or immigrants? They're like literally, hey, guys, we have no money. We haven't had any money for 20 years. Right. But the EU goes, well, if you're going to be a part of the EU and you're going to get bank loans from us, then you have to. It's got to be open doors You know, bring bring the cages down bring the fences down, right? That is, that's the Fourth Reich, <laughs> as unpopular yeah. as it may sound. Um, so that's sort of right. what I mean more by imperialism. But for example, um, I don't, I I like the world the way it is. And so that that doesn't mean that a Japanese person, you know, can't open up a Chick-fil-A. You know, I mean, like, bring <laughs> Chick-fil-A to Japan, by all means. Um but I like Japan because it's Japanese and that it's not American. And that's, I think, one of the the, the, the I think the fundamental understandings of nationalism is, is that nationalism is just about nations keeping their cultures and, and being the way they are and thinking the way they think. And, and allowing them to be that way um, and not um, economically muscling them into this, that or the other thing.
0: Yeah. I think also it can't just be defined as like any other culture trying to influence another culture because like you talked about, okay, well we defeated the Germans in world war two because of not just German imperialism, but bad German imperialism based on bad ideas. And yeah. we decided like, no, I'm sorry, Germany, like you're not going to do that. And we're going to push back on you. So I guess you could argue that that was a form of imperialism from the allied forces saying, I'm sorry, Germany, like you don't have a right to do that. And I think that, I think that we have to make a distinction there because we don't want to be morally relativistic because right is right. And wrong is wrong. And the problem with the third Reich was not just imperialism was not just nationalism Was a, it was a bad idea. It was a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Like objectively it was a bad idea. And so when you have good ideas, like, we actually want that to influence. Like, I do think American foreign policy has been misguided in some ways. Like, we thought that importing capitalism into China was going to make them be this free democracy. Like, that didn't turn out well. It just gave them more power to be to be communists. But then you look at, like, you know, the British colony of Hong Kong. Like, importing Western values into Hong Kong was really good for Hong Kong. Like they wanted those Western values, like they wanted right. that Western rule of law. And now that they're under the rule of China, like they have no autonomy or no freedom. So yeah. I think it's also important to distinguish between like trying to influence people with good ideas is good. Influencing people with bad ideas is bad. And I, yeah. I'm not sure, like, I don't know if we can necessarily say that that's imperialism, but I also think it's important to, do, to just be objective morally that, yeah, some yeah. ideas are really bad to import and some ideas are good.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I totally agree. Like, I don't think imperialism is influencing people with good ideas. I think imperialism is muscling right. people. Right. So, um, and yes, the, the American agree. reaction, for example, you know, England was being bombed. Um, Holland had been invaded. Poland had been invaded. So, Germany had violated the self-determination of other countries. And so when we when mm. we declared mm-hmm. war on Germany, we weren't fighting in Germany first. We were fighting in places where they had muscled for in our ally. And, yeah. and shown imperial strength, <laughs> if that makes sense. So, you know, an, an imperialistic war is a war where you violate the sovereignty of somebody else um, for, you know, for, for, for so, for example, you know, Augustine, as a Christian, you know, I'm, I'm an Augustinian in terms of you know, my philosophy on war. And Augustine believes that defensive war is the only just war. So, for example, the Americans coming to the aid of the South Vietnamese, that would, that's a, as, as far as I'm concerned, that's a just war. If your allies going, hey, we're being killed right now and we need help, that, that's a just war. That might be the most uh, you know, um, controversial thing I'll ever say. Um, but that, that's what I believe. So, but, that's not a, but, but the war in Vietnam was not imperialistic in the sense that America came uninvited into the war. No, America came invited into the war by their South Vietnamese allies who were perishing. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is, that's controversial because now we look at American history through the lens of American strength is always bad. It's always been the source of oppression and repression. And it's all, It's also interesting how if you like that kind of worldview, if you point out to someone who believes that, like, well, look at all these other countries that are still oppressing their people that are corrupt, that have nothing to do with America, still somehow conveniently, it always falls back on American imperialism. It always right. falls back that it's actually America's fault that Africa is poor and not the fact that China is actually colonizing and imperialistically invading those countries as we speak right now and exploiting them. That's a good example, I think, of what you're talking about.
1: If you're overweight and you're black, it's it's white supremacy.
0: Yeah, that's the critical race theory worldview. Everything has to fit into America bad, white bad, evangelical bad. Now evangelical has been kind of like put into that. I saw an article in the New York Times the other day how – White evangelicals are going to, like, stop the vaccination effort and um, and um basically arguing, OK, white evangelicals are killing people because of this. And then they linked to the they linked to the study that shows what white evangelicals think about the vaccines. Well, the majority, 55 percent of white evangelicals plan to get the vaccine. So. That they buried that lead that the majority of white evangelicals plan to get the vaccine and they simply talked about, well, there's still a large percentage that don't. And because of that, they're preventing people from getting the vaccine when actually the largest populations of people who are skeptical about the vaccines are not white. Um, and so, yeah, it's become like the same people who are saying that, you know, Christian nationalists are are everywhere and that we're the, the source of the problem. They're the ones that have created this boogeyman. They've created this boogeyman right. that has been, um, I don't know, it's just been seeping into American culture, I guess, for a, a very long time.
1: Yeah. No, that's um, exactly okay, it. let's finish
0: by, oh, go ahead, go ahead. It just delayed no, for no, a second.
1: No, nothing. I, I have Nothing
0: nothing. Okay. Uh, let's finish by quickly talking about your book and telling people where they can, can find your book, why you wrote this book, hearing God and and what it's about.
1: Yeah. I wrote the book hearing God because I wanted to hear God. Um, I wrote it because I was, um, my, my background is growing up charismatic and, um, and as I, began to sort of study you know the scriptures and ask more questions about my you know I'm still charismatic I still identify as charismatic I still believe uh, that God talks to people and um, but uh, I just felt like um, maybe my, my people the charismatic evangelicals needed um, just a guide on you know, you know how to hear God um and specifically that god speaks you know very practically and that the supernatural isn't always spectacular sometimes it's super ordinary um and so like for example like reading the bible well the bible is inspired by the holy spirit and the holy spirit is never going to say something that contradicts the bible because those are his words um so just stuff like that it's sort of like a it's some it's somewhat of a memoir of growing up charismatic um meets Laying out foundationally uh, how how God speaks. God speaks through parents. He speaks through mentors. He, he primarily. I mean, first and foremost, he speaks through his word, right? But I kind of outline it, um, and then I sort of deal with some charismatic myths. It's a bit of a myth-busting book. So, you know, does God speak through, you know, you know, if, if I just flip the, you know, the the, the Bible, and I just my finger down is that how the the bible works is that how, is it like like a harry potter map or something um so that's kind of the uh that's the the long and short of it
0: yeah and where can they find that anywhere they want to buy their books
1: yeah amazon um barnes and nobles
0: yeah and you're on instagram that's where i enjoy following both you and your brother you do a lot of myth busting as well on Instagram. You take posts and kind of break them down. A lot of people who listen to this podcast and follow me, follow you, and they send me you and your brother's post because you guys, with a lot of good humor and also in good faith, um, rebut a lot of the craziness and the chaos that we're seeing with God's word. I really appreciate that. I appreciate Theos you. I appreciate all the resources that you are putting into the hands of people that are hungry for truth. And the only place where they're finding something masquerading as truth is these progressive deconstructionist <laughs> Instagram yeah. accounts. So thank you for, for offering alternatives to that and always offering interesting perspectives. I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, well, the feeling's mutual. I love your Instagram account. You, um, your stories, they do get a little bit long at times. I will say there's a lot of text and it's very small. <laughs> so could you help a brother out Make oh. it a little bigger?
0: Do you have readers?
1: What's readers? Do you have
0: like eyeglasses? Oh, (laughs) Oh, eyeglasses that you can. (laughs) Yeah, you might you might need it. No, I know that's true. Sometimes I have a lot. It's typically when I'm copy and pasting like a big chunk of scripture. But you're right. Okay, I'll start to break them up. I'll start to break them up so the the old like you can can read them. No, but you can't because you can't fit it all on there. And sometimes, like I need to reference. I need to reference like this stupid post, and so it has to be seen. I can't make the fonts bigger. I'm not purposely making them small. It's just like this is what can fit. But I, I, I hear you. I take your feedback. I'll apply it. Okay. good.
1: No, I appreciate how thorough you are. I like, like, I know that if I'm gonna read your stories and when, when I'm reading through them, like, I appreciate how thorough you are. So like, you know, like you, you, you put in your resources. So why this is the link, you know, like you're you're really good for that. I, I need to be better at that. So well, I, that's I because
0: I've just noticed that you know, people a lot of people, I you probably get this too, but I'll have talked about something 1 million times and people I'll get messages being like, "Why don't you ever talk about this?" or "Why have you never defined crt and i'm like oh my gosh if i define this one more time i think the people who do follow me are going to freak (laughs) out because i've talked about it so much and so there's just like i i realize that there's so many people that miss contacts and need context, and also who have no idea what you and i are talking about like there are just people that are coming in and they need a lot of information and so i do try to provide some context (laughs) you do so anyway uh, thank you so much. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Um, I really, really appreciate it. And we'll put the links to Theos you as well and anything right. else, maybe uh, your book as well in the description to this podcast.
1: Cool. Thank you.